And as we now prepare our hearts to come to your word, we ask that you would use your word to accomplish your purposes in our lives. We pray that you would use your word to strengthen us, to nourish us. Oh Lord, we are just beggars who rely on your word, who rely on your grace, who apart from your spirit could have no understanding of the text we come to today. And so we do pray that the Spirit would illuminate the text for us and help us to see, help us to understand, and help us, O Lord, to not just be hearers. O Lord, forbid that we be people who are just here to check off a box on our weekly schedules. Lord, we pray that we would not just be hearers, but that we would be hearers and doers of your word for the glory of Christ to be seen and demonstrated in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be continuing in our study of 1 Samuel today, looking at verses uh, 36 uh, to 46 uh, as we continue in our study. Last week, we started to look at the issue of legalism. And it became apparent to me this week that it is a very needed subject. Uh, it's something that needs to be addressed and spoken on uh, perhaps more often. As I'm uh, telling me, either under a legalistic pastor or having maybe a legalistic spouse, uh, who, and it, whichever the case may be, it's, it's spiritual abuse and it tends to be just suffocating. So if, if you liked listening to a sermon about legalism, uh, <laughs> we'll be talking some more about it in this sermon uh, this week as we continue. Uh, today, uh, you may know, is the day that we refer to as Reformation Sunday. Um, and on Reformation Sunday, of course, that marks uh, the birth of the Reformation more than 500 years ago, but it's a good thing for us to be reminded of uh, the fact that we are Protestant. And when I say that we are Protestant, uh, what am I saying when I say that? What I'm saying is that we are protesting. In fact, we are all a bunch of protesters. Uh, maybe you didn't realize that that's what it means to be a Protestant, uh, and that's okay if that's the case, but it's vitally, vitally important that we know what it is exactly that, uh, that we've been protesting for 507 years now. But in a nutshell, what we are protesting is the addition of absolutely anything to God's Word. That's what we are protesting, the addition of absolutely what Reformation was about. We are protesting the addition of absolutely anything to God's Word. At the heart of the Protestant Reformation was the issue of Scripture and the authority of Scripture or the authority of tradition or both. Now, sometimes those two things are aligned, right? Sometimes Scripture and tradition are aligned, but the problem was sometimes they're not. And that's what Martin Luther, who obviously was the, the one who, who kicked off the Protestant Reformation, that's what he had a problem with when tradition and Scripture did not align. 
And his complaints were things like the practice of indulgences and the doctrine of purgatory. He saw that there was absolutely no basis for any of these things in Scripture, none whatsoever, and he took very serious issue with the fact that these traditions of the Roman Catholic Church had essentially been things that were added to God's Word. They weren't supported by God's Word, so where did they come from? They had to have been added to God's Word. Adding to God's Word is the essence of what legalism is. It's the essence of what we refer to as legalism. Now, if you were to look up the term legalism, the word legalism in the dictionary, you might get a definition that's similar to the definition that I found in the fifth edition of the American Heritage Dictionary, which defines legalism this way. It says, quote, overly strict or rigid adherence to the law or to a religious or moral code. Now that's pretty subjective. At what point does it become overly rigid um, or overly strict? Now I, I don't often take issue with dictionaries, although I've certainly lost a degree of trust in dictionaries in recent years as they have redefined certain words like racism that used to have a very objective meaning and now it's something that's far more... When it comes to legalism, at least when it comes to the American Heritage Dictionary, they get it completely wrong. Uh, the Apostle Paul took issue with the Galatian Judaizers, right? Why? Because they had added to the Gospel. They had taught that salvation was received by grace, but not by grace alone. It was by grace through faith and circumcision. So in other words, works were tacked on. And Paul's argument throughout his letter to the Galatians was attacking the legalism that this entailed necessarily. And so with that in mind, let me give you a working definition of legalism, at least a biblical definition of what legalism is. Legalism is simply adding to what God's Word says. It means imposing your own personal convictions on others, or maybe your own preferences on others in areas in which Scripture grants liberty. Oh yeah, Scripture does grant liberty in a lot of areas. And to not uncommon, unfortunately, for people to take that liberty and to have their own opinion of it and to impose it on others. And that is what legalism is. Now, there are several passages in Scripture that give us the absolute strictest warnings against adding to what God has said. Everyone who hears the one writes in Revelation 22:18. He says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. Now, somebody is going to argue and say, they're going to push back and say that this refers only to the words and the prophecies contained in the book of Revelation. And even if that's the case, and I think it is, uh, but even if that is the case, there's a clear warning right there in Revelation 22:18 against adding to God's word. But we also find the same warning 
uh, in several other places in Scripture. One place would be in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. God says, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, so that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. That warning is repeated in chapter 12, verse 32, where the Lord says, where, uh, Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. This is a stern warning against two things, actually, adding to or taking away. If you add to it, you have legalism. If you take away from it, you have lawlessness. That's what you get when you take away from God's Word. Now, if we understand this much, and if we understand the things that sparked the Protestant Reformation, the things that made the Protestant Reformation necessary, we'll see that ultimately... The Reformation was a protest against adding to God's Word. It was against legalism. A protest of of traditions being uh, given the same authority as God's Word. A protest against the imposing of, ultimately, preferences and opinions in areas where Scripture grants liberty or things that were absolutely opposed to Scripture. Now, as we continue in our study of For Samuel today, we should remember that Israel has been at war with the Philistines throughout this book. Uh, The Philistines rose up in this case, though, against Israel after Jonathan uh, struck the garrison of the uh, the Philistines. So they they rose up in response to that, uh, which sent King Saul and his son Jonathan, along with their army of about 600 men, running for cover. Uh, to a geographical area that would have been very difficult for a military to close in on. There, were, there was kind of a bottleneck there so that the, the, the whole military wouldn't be able to go through it once. It would just be a few people going through it once. You wouldn't be able to do an invasion there. So King Saul uh, finds a place where he can just sit under a pomegranate tree and do absolutely nothing to remedy the situation, the oppression of the Israelites. But Jonathan trusted that the Lord could if he desired, use him, uh, Jonathan being uh, the person that God could use, to save the Israelites. And so Jonathan sprang into action with his armor-bearer, and he went and invaded the Philistine army himself. Their enemies, nevertheless, would not be completely eliminated as a result of King Saul's foolishness. Now, as we started to take a closer look at the events of that battle that day, uh, in verses uh, 24 to 35, we saw that King Saul was guilty of adding to God's word. We saw that King Saul was guilty of legalism. What did he do? He imposed an oath upon the men of Israel that God had not imposed upon the men of Israel. King Saul had required more of the army than uh, than God required of the army. And then he warned them that, that if completely destroyed. And so the battle goes on throughout the day and the men starve. Now, Jonathan hadn't heard that command because he was busy in war. He was busy slaying the Philistines. And so when he went through a forest in the region which had an abundant supply of honey, he ate of it. He ate some of the honey and it served to, uh, we were told, brighten his eyes and to, to invigorate him in battle. It gave him energy. But the other men in the army didn't eat of the honey. And so by the end of the day, what do you think was happening with them? 
as they pursued the Philistines for over 20 miles in this rugged terrain. They were starving. They were malnourished. They needed something to eat. And they were so hungry that they actually started pillaging and ransacking the food of the Philistines, and they were eating portions of the meat with the blood still in it. Something that they were strictly forbidden by God from doing. And so the result of King Saul's legalism was that it stirred up sin in all of his army against God. King Saul, we saw, was more concerned with his own agenda. He was more concerned with his own glory than he was with God's agenda and God's glory. And so he tries to remedy this situation by instructing his soldiers. What we saw was that Saul had just become increasingly legalistic, uh, increasingly religious, but only in an outward sense. Because as he was doing all these religious, ritualistic types of things outwardly, his heart at the same time was being hardened against God. Uh, And we have seen that this has been happening more and more since he was rebuked, since uh, King Saul was rebuked by Samuel back in chapter 13 for worshiping God in a way that God had not instructed And so as we continue with the story of this battle today, zooming in on it to see what King Saul did to really destroy the the Israelites' chances of completely wiping out the Philistines on that day, we're going to see the way that King Saul's legalism produces this snowball effect of terrible, terrible consequences. Worse and worse consequences just start, uh, start piling up on top of one another. But the point of the passage that we'll be covering today, biblical convictions which are consistent with God's Word, driven by faith from the heart, and tempered by graciousness. So having constructed this altar, uh, his first altar, in one demonstration of, uh, of his empty outward religiosity, Saul now attempts to rally the troops of Israel once again. Let's look at verses 36 and 37 of chapter 14. It says, Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and take spoil among them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. So the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. Now the army of Israel, of course, had had a little bit of a respite. A little bit of a break in the action, a chance to rest, a chance to eat, but they certainly have not had a full night's sleep, right? Uh, After pursuing the Philistines for over 20 miles across this rugged mountain desert terrain. And so they are undoubtedly extremely fatigued and probably pretty sore. Some of them might even be a little bit beat up, but their king gives them an order to pick up their stuff and get going. Let's continue to press on in battle and to pursue the Philistines through the night. Matthew Henry, the commentator, says of this command, quote, here he showed much zeal, but little discretion. In other words, he had a lot of enthusiasm, but he was kind of stupid. 
It wasn't a very wise command. It's undoubtedly true that King Saul had a lot of enthusiasm to finish this battle. The question is, what was driving his enthusiasm? Where was it coming from? It was coming from Saul's desire to pursue his agenda and his glory, not out of a concern for God's agenda or God's glory. We saw that from the beginning, King Saul has made this about his agenda and his glory, that he hasn't made it anything to do with it, uh, with God's glory and God's agenda. So that's what drives his enthusiasm. We might add, that's also what drives his stupidity. Uh, But this is where things really start to go very sideways for Saul. And everybody can see it going sideways, except, guess who? King Do whatever seems good to you. Who's not included in that response? They're not. They're telling Saul, you go ahead. Do whatever you want to do. Knock yourself out. If that's what you want to do, go for it. But we're staying right here, and we're going to rest right where we are. That's essentially what they are saying. Or if you want to make it more succinct, their response could be summarized by whatever. Whatever. Yeah, see ya. Have fun, King Saul. We're staying here. Saul's order earlier in the day was that they not eat and that they not plunder. Remember that? When his army was then demoralized and fatigued by the end of the day, he thinks that he can motivate them. He thinks that he can inspire them by instructing the very opposite, to pursue the Philistines so that they may plunder them and get some more food. Saul is just being pragmatic here. Pragmatic just means uh, doing whatever works. Not necessarily having any conviction uh, or any, you know, any concern over what's right or what's wrong or what's pleasing to God or what's not pleasing to God. No, he's just trying to get the job done. He's apparently willing to do anything that will work to motivate his army. He obviously has no idea how to motivate an army, right? Because they can see right through it. He's demonstrates command is his instruction here is and how foolish it is uh, for them to consider picking up all their stuff and and pursuing through uh, through the night see Saul's order might have been zealous and enthusiastic uh, but again it is completely lacking in real wisdom here's one of the problems with legalism This outward demonstration of religiosity, which is ultimately carnal and godless, is that it causes the person who's legalistic to be absolutely consumed with themselves. It causes the person to think only in terms of themselves and not to consider the needs or the desires or the convictions of others. That's what legalism does. It makes you only see yourself. It turns us into narcissists, ultimately. And at this point, again, his agenda, his glory, those are the things that he's concerned about. And so it's a foolish move on his part because it takes into consideration nobody but himself to say, let's continue in the battle until morning. Foolish men, know this, foolish men are virtually guaranteed to be focused on no one but themselves. And once again, we see a huge contrast between 
King Saul and Jonathan. You'll recall that when Jonathan summoned his armor bearer to accompany him to go, uh, go into the Philistine camp and to go up against the Philistines, trusting that God uh, could save by many or save by few, as few as even the two of them, uh, you remember what the armor bearer's response to Jonathan was? It's back in verse 7 of this chapter. It was to say, Do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. That is a man who is motivated. That's a man who is on board with the person who's leading him. Do you see how different the armor bearer's response was from the answer, the response of King Saul's army? The armor bearer's response indicated a trust in Jonathan as his leader. The response of King Saul's army, what does that indicate? A total lack of trust. Jonathan's armor bearer saw Jonathan as a man of faith that he could follow. The army's response indicates that they see King Saul as a faithless, selfish tyrant who shouldn't be followed. So let's make sure that we're all on the same page here and that we're all seeing the same page, uh, seeing the same thing on the same page. What we see here is that King Saul's legalism, coupled with his foolishness and selfish ambition, has cost him his credibility and uh, also his authority in the eyes of his soldiers. His legalism has cost him his authority and his credibility in the eyes of his soldiers. His legalism was just a heavy, heavy burden. It was a needless burden that he placed on them. And the army at this point has absolutely had enough of it. You can imagine that this was probably a pretty tense moment when King Saul says, hey, we're going to do this. And they say, yeah, you go ahead and do it. You can imagine the kind of tension that would be running through all these testosterone-filled men uh, at the end of a day in battle, right? I imagine there was this moment of silence as King Saul glared at his defiant army and as his defiant army just glared back at him. And so there's kind of a humorous interjection here that is real easy to just read right by, but it's an interjection by the priest. He says, let us draw near to God here. In other words, he's breaking this layer of tense silence, this emotionally charged uh, glare that's going back and forth between the king and his men, uh, or he tries to do that by saying, whoa, everyone, uh, let's all just take a breather here and, and let's draw near to God. Let's, let's maybe pray to him. And maybe he was thinking that the army would, uh, you know, if they just took a moment to draw near to God, to pray to the Lord, maybe they'd change their minds and say, okay, we'll go. I think it's more likely that he said this actually to save the king's life. Whatever the case, Saul prays to God, right? He, he follows the, the, uh, the recommendation of the priest uh, and he prays to God for all to hear. He says to God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? And what does God say in response? Nothing. Nothing. His prayer, if you want to call it that, it's just a question, not really a prayer. It's just met with absolute silence. We're told that the Lord did not answer him on that day. And if you're wondering why 
God didn't respond to Samuel's question or prayer or whatever it is, perhaps the answer is as simple as, why should he have? Why should God have said anything to King Saul? Why should he have felt any obligation to help whatsoever? See, Saul was guilty of honoring the Lord, but only with his lips, while his heart was far away from God. Same as the Pharisees in Jesus' time. And the truth is, King Saul wouldn't have wanted it any other way. He'd already demonstrated earlier on in the day that he didn't care what God had to say about the matter. See, legalism is a powerless religion because it rejects the power of God. Legalism is a powerless religion because it rejects the power of God. In Saul's mind, the victory is in his hands. It's within his grasp and his army's grasp. Saul is clearly uninterested in what God has to say about any of this, which is why Saul does this all completely backwards. He, he, he thinks of consulting God kind of as a, a backup plan, right? This is like his plan B, instead of consulting with God first. Uh, that's what he should have done. Before he came up with this brilliant idea, if he wanted to know what God's thoughts were about it, that would have been the time to ask. But now that his army isn't willing to move, God's the backup plan. So he's got it completely backwards. Legalism is a powerless religion not only because it rejects the power of God, legalism is a powerless religion because God is God. That that's the case. Praise be to God that He, that he clearly, clearly judges by the heart. Because that means that we can't fool or deceive Him in any way. It also means that even though you might keep going back to one particular sin over and over again, God knows whether or not you truly hate that sin. If you despise that sin, and yet you keep going back to it, and you hate the fact that you keep going back to it, God sees that. He sees that you hate that sin. He sees that you hate the fact that you keep going back to that sin. And He sees your desire to be released from bondage to that sin. Because he sees the heart. Praise be to God, he sees the heart of man. And that's what he's concerned with. And that's why he rejects Saul. Because Saul's heart is just hardening against the Lord. If Saul's outward religion, think of it this way, if Saul's outward religion didn't impress his army, if they were able to see right through it, how much less do you think it impressed God? How much less do you think it fooled God? This is why God is silent here in response to King Saul's question. Legalism is a powerless because God is concerned with the heart, and legalism is a powerless religion because it is, in the ultimate sense, entirely self-serving. In Saul's mind, again, this is all about his agenda and his glory. Again, it, it's no wonder that God is silent in response to Saul's questions. Now, put yourself in the shoes of King Saul's army on that day. And consider the kind of ridicule that King Saul has made himself vulnerable to 
open to by getting nothing but silence from God as he asks God these questions. But you don't think that King Saul's actually done making a fool of himself yet, right? No, he's got a long way to go. He's nowhere near done. Uh, Because rather than realizing that the silence from God is because of his own sin, he now shifts the blame to his army. Instead of pleading with God to serve, he indicts the men he's trying to motivate. Let's continue looking at verses 38 to 42. It says, Saul said, Draw near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate and see how this sin has happened today. For as the Lord lives, who delivers Israel, though it is in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not one of all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Saul said, Cast lots between me and Jonathan my son. And Jonathan was taken. In an attempt to mimic other stories that have come before this in the Bible. In an attempt to uncover the sin that's in the camp, the sin responsible for God's silence. Now, we know, right? We know whose sin that is, right? We know it's Saul's sin. But Saul casts another oath, calling for the death of the transgressor who brought sin into the camp, thereby prohibiting the Israelites from experiencing God's victory, total victory in the battle. He says that the person who did it, the person who brought the sin into the camp, into the army, shall die, even if it's his own son, Jonathan. And Saul's army gives him the same response that God did. Silence. Silence. And we should see that nobody issues a word. Nobody mutters a word as to who might have sinned. But we should see in light of their silence that the army feels a strong sense of loyalty to Jonathan and no sense of loyalty to King Saul because not one of them turns on Jonathan. Not one of them snitches on Jonathan having eaten of the honey earlier in the day. I imagine that the army is still kind of glaring at King Saul. He's the one who has sinned here. And King Saul is the only one who is apparently completely oblivious to the fact that King Saul's sin is the sin that resulted in God's silence. He's the one that gave Uh, A burden to his army. An unnecessary burden to his army. He's the one who vowed that anyone who eats before the Philistines are completely obliterated would be cursed, thereby requiring more of them than even God Himself did. Legalism is not only a powerless religion. Legalism is a foolish religion. Because it ultimately has the underlying word, We know better than God does. Why else would we add to God's Word? We might be thinking, oh, God God forgot something. But I didn't. That's the underlying assumption. 
That's the only reason that somebody would add to what God has said, what God has instructed. They imagine that in some way, in one way or another, God's Word is deficient. Perish the thought. To the contrary, God's Word is always, always sufficient. It is always sufficient. The legalist denies that by definition and by implication of what they're doing. And this is why the Protestant Reformation was necessary. Because Rome denied the sufficiency of Scripture. And to this day, we must still make sure that we hold the view of the sufficiency of Scripture, and we must reject anything and everything that even attempts to contend with God's Word. That the sin is neither on himself nor on his son Jonathan that he instructs all of Israel saying you shall be on one side and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side Uh, there's a scene in Deuteronomy that I think he's trying to mimic there but this way when lots are cast uh, Saul's thinking that he and Jonathan can be quickly uh, eliminated from any and all suspicion of wrongdoing and once again the men respond by saying do what seems good to you In other words, once again, knock yourself out. Or, more succinctly, whatever. So they divide up. And Saul, trying his best to sound religious and pious, which he's gotten pretty good at outwardly, he says to God, give a perfect lot. So lots are being cast to determine if the sin is among the the soldiers or in Saul and Jonathan. Now, some people may argue that Saul was trying to hide between uh, or hide behind uh, Jonathan's innocence. I, I don't think that's the case here. I think he honestly had no idea uh, that, that Jonathan had broken the oath that uh, that Saul had threatened against his men earlier in the day when Jonathan ate from the honey in the forest. But the result of this lot being cast is that the transgression. Saul seems at least genuinely surprised here. So again, I don't think he's trying to hide behind his son's innocence. But as the lot falls on Saul and on his son, at this point, what's he going to do? How is he going to get out of this? He has, he has no options of escape here. He has no way to get away from this situation. He's basically put himself in a situation where there's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. He has no choice but to proceed. And so he instructs, presumably to uh, Ahijah, the, the priest, cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son. In other words, let's figure out which one of us sinned. Again, he doesn't know. strange twist of events is that Jonathan is identified as the transgressor. Now, Jonathan ate of the honey and therefore violated his father's oath, but did he sin? No, he did not. God is the one who defines sin. The legalism that King Saul was guilty of uh, may have thought that that was a sin, but God didn't. God didn't. But Jonathan is identified as the transgressor. And we should add, wrongfully so. Wrongfully so. Jonathan is not guilty of anything that has resulted in God's silence here. Saul is. So I I hope you see the irony in all this. The the guilty party, King Saul, is completely blind, completely oblivious 
to his own sin. By the way, legalists always are. But now this this foolish, legalistic, burdensome oath is actually going to cost him something. It, It backfires. And if he's going to follow through on it, if he's going to make it's going to cost him his son. What a predicament. Jonathan has committed no open or flagrant sin against the Lord whatsoever, and yet he's the one who's identified as the transgressor. See, legalism creates a grievous injustice here. Legalism does that. It sees people uh, as being guilty of things that they're not actually guilty of. Legalism has a way of creating just an avalanche of consequences. That's what we're supposed to see here. Do you see that? Do you see how these consequences are heaping up on him one after another? But here's why it's such a trap. Here's why legalism has any appeal whatsoever. Why it's such a trap. It's because looks, outward motions or words can be so deceiving. A legalist can look and and even sound very holy, very, very religious, very pious, even pious enough to fool other people, at least for a time, even sometimes pious enough to fool one's own self. And this, friends, legalism is the world's religion. Legalism is a religion that appeals to the flesh. You know who loves legalism? Satan. Satan loves legalism because it makes somebody feel sure of their standing before God when they shouldn't be. It makes somebody feel prideful that they can do this and they can do that and they can you know, play the role, so to speak. But it's just a facade. Satan loves somebody to have that kind of false assurance. Why do you suppose that the Lord has given us a, a chapter like this one to consider? Would it not make sense that He would give us a chapter like this so that we may see the absolute foolishness of legalism? Or so that we might see the disastrous consequences of legalism? Perhaps that we might see what a complete joke or even a miscarriage of justice it is? Or consider that in, good, in God's good and sovereign providence, He gave us this chapter so that we might even go so far as to hate legalism. Hate it so much that we want absolutely nothing to do with it ourselves. Hate it so much that we might examine ourselves and search within ourselves to make sure that there's not even a trace, not even a smidgen of a root in it, within us, or among us. Man, Saul's got himself really in a bad predicament here. He's got himself cornered. Obviously, he doesn't want his son to have to die. But at the same time, he's already pronounced a death sentence on the guilty party. So if he goes back now, he'll look like a complete buffoon right in front of his whole army. And I I think he knows it. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I must die. Saul said, May God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, 
Must Jonathan die who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So King Saul asks Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. How ironic that this is so strikingly similar to what Samuel had said to King Saul when Saul had actually sinned against God in the previous chapter by worshiping God in a way that God had not instructed. Uh, But you'll recall that Samuel came and rebuked him, rebuked King Saul, saying to him, What have you done upon arriving in Gilgal back in chapter 13, verse 11? So it looks like Saul remembers those words and he's kind of trying to imitate them. That's what legalism does as well. It's fake. So it can do some copying and everything, but it's never genuine and original itself. But Jonathan responds by confessing the odious and heinous sin that he's supposedly so guilty of. He says, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I must die. I can't tell if he's being sarcastic or not. I actually think he's not. I think he's willing to die here. But you see the predicament that Saul's in, don't you? But why do you think it is that God at least appears to have played along with Saul's little religious game here? I propose that it's to show you and to show me and to show anyone who reads this how unjust how completely unjust and how incredibly foolish legalism is. But it's also to show us how flawed this type of justice system is in which lots are cast. You might say that this is a case of if you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes, right? That's the saying, right? But this is not the justice system that God has ordained for them, is it? What's the justice system that God had given Israel, the the justice system that was given to Israel in the law? Two or three witnesses were necessary. And in this case, that system, God's system of justice, is cast aside and it's exchanged for this religiosity, this legalistic uh, casting of lots that Saul proposes. Where did that idea come from? It didn't come from God's Word. And so once again, God's Word is being added to here. And so lots are cast to identify the guilty person, and the guilty person goes free. Jonathan is an innocent man. In fact, Jonathan was the one man in the entire camp who had been faithful to the Lord that day. He's the one who had trusted in the Lord to work. He's the one who had availed himself to the Lord's service and his use on that day. So this system of casting lots actually did the opposite of what it was supposed to do. Without God's blessing of this system of justice, the lots that were cast to put uh, to, to find the, the guilty person, put an innocent man on the chopping block, showing us 
how important it is that we follow God's instructions and showing us how foolish it is to forego what God has given us. It shows us that legalism leads to injustice and unrighteousness and is in fact mere vanity, a deceptive demonstration of hollow, powerless, wicked glory. God's will. No, it's that man's ideas are no substitute for God's instructions. Man's ideas are no substitute for the justice system that God had prescribed for Israel. So let's ask this. At this point, as bad as things are, and as, as much as King Saul has worked himself into this corner that he can't get out of, what should he have done at this point? He should have humbled himself and confessed his own sin and his own foolishness. He should have repented of his presumptuousness toward God, replacing God's justice system with his own, recognizing the foolishness of requiring earlier in the day more from God's people than God himself did, and he should have taken the blame entirely and unequivocally upon himself. I have to imagine that if he had had the humility to do that, he could have won some credibility back from his men. Saul should have insisted that he die in the place of his son. What kind of father would not have done that? What kind of father would not have stepped forward and said, I'll be the one to die, not my son. He's innocent. What kind of father? Well, a selfish one. A selfish father. A father who is consumed with vanity. A father who is consumed with pursuing his own glory above everything else. And that's the kind of father King Saul reveals himself to be here. If he can't be loyal to his own son, what's going to make anybody think that he'll be loyal to them, whether it's in the army or whoever else? He was not a good father. He was a burdensome, vain tyrant of a father who wouldn't and couldn't love anyone more than he loved himself. And so instead of repenting as he should have, instead of humbling himself as he should have, he doubles down, vowing before everyone that Jonathan must die. Just as the Protestant reformers took a stand against the tyranny and the traditions of the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church, and just as God's people always must rise up and take a stand against the tyranny of legalism, Saul's army stands up and they swear an oath of their own victory. And they vow in Jonathan's defense, they say, as the Lord lives, that's the indication of a vow, right, or an oath, as the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. Why is it that everybody can see this except Saul? It's because Saul was blinded with selfishness and legalism. The army, the men of the army, they see how different Jonathan is from his father, their, their king. They specifically point out that Jonathan had worked with God on that day. 
how unlike his father, their, their king, Jonathan, was. And thus we're told, so the people rescued Jonathan and he did not die. The result of King Saul's legalistic, fake, hollow, powerless, foolish religiosity was that he didn't have... The rest of First and Second Samuel would turn out if only he had been a faithful king. No, he would not have complete victory on that day, and he would actually not have complete victory ever throughout his life. The pursuit in this battle ended at this spot. At this spot, everybody gets up and goes home. The Philistines would live to fight another day. Instead of defeating them once and for all like they were supposed to, King Saul would eventually be killed in battle with the Philistines. But what we must see is what's unfolding here, and that is that the army has revolted against their king, who is an absolute tyrant. And rightly so, by the way. It's right for them to revolt against their king. No king has the right to shed innocent blood. And Saul went so far as to approve of shedding the innocent blood of his own son. His legalism ended up destroying any and all credibility and authority that he had with his army and with his countrymen, and ultimately it would result in God rejecting him as king. So let me review some of the important principles and lessons that we've gleaned from this chapter. First of all, Friends, we, we've got to all be on guard against legalism within ourselves because it is the religion of the flesh. And every single one of us has a struggle, an ongoing battle with the flesh. So the first lesson is we must guard ourselves against being more consumed with our own agendas and our own, our own glory than we are with God's agenda and God's glory. Guard yourself against that. Your chief end in life, friends, that is to say, your primary purpose, the reason that you exist, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And with that in mind, let me just say this, you cannot and you will not glorify God by being more consumed and more concerned with your own glory than you are with God's. So guard yourself against that. Again, this is the religion of the world. This is the way of the world. And while we are inescapably in the world, we're not to be of the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 offers a call to all Christians, a charge for every Christian. There the Lord says to us, His people, He says, therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. That's an instruction that applies to me. It's an instruction that applies to you. It's not saying that we can't be in the world. We are in the world. God has put us here in this time, at this place, and we're here, but we're not to be of the world. We are to come out from their midst and be separate. That's our calling as Christians. That means we aren't to pursue the same things. We aren't to think the same way that the world thinks. We aren't to value the same things that the world values. We aren't to love the same things that the world loves. We're called to love and to pursue and to desire the things of God above everything else. The world only knows 
The world only knows how to pursue what is wrong. They only know how to pursue sin and selfishness and vanity. And Saul is an illustration of that principle. Now, we haven't seen it in our, in our text yet, but the fruit of Saul's pursuit of his own agenda and his own glory is going to just lead to years and years of misery for him. Years in which his heart becomes increasingly hardened more and more to the will and to the ways of God. It's its own punishment in that sense. And the pursuit of your own glory will do the same to you as well. If you're pursuing your own glory above God's glory, it's going to result in your heart being hardened too. So how do we avoid that? I'd say that brings us to the second lesson here. The second principle is that we avoid this by seeking to glorify God in all that we do and remaining humble before Him, practicing true religion that's from the heart. Not just an outward showing of religion, but a real desire within us for the will and the ways of God. So it's driven not by an attempt to impress anybody, even an attempt to impress God. No, it's driven primarily by faith rather than the desire to put on a facade that in one way or another, believe me, in one way or another, every facade that you put on will eventually break at some point. It'll eventually start to crack. Somebody is going to start to see through it. You know why? Because it's a, it's a, it's a legalistic burden, a heavy burden, a wearisome burden for a person to continually carry. Eventually, some real uh, personality, some true colors start shining through, as you might say. Consider the vast difference between Saul and the way that he responds to his sin and David and the way that David would respond to his sin. Saul was constantly just doubling down as an attempt to kind of squirmish his way out of it. But David would confess his sin. And he'd write in Psalm 51, verses 1 to 3, he'd say, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, your hesed, uh, that's covenant love, according to your covenant love, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Oh, what a blessing it is when we sin in that sin our own sin is before us constantly. It's a blessing that Saul wanted no part of. It was a blessing for David because David knew how to get free of that, to cleanse himself of that transgression. He knew that the only way was to go to the Lord in prayer and to confess it because you can't hide anything with God. But it was a blessing that David knew as he looked forward to the coming 
of the true and better king, his own descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as the angel told Joseph, would save his people from their sins. Taking our sin and reconciling us to God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Atonement would be made for every sin of every person who believes in Jesus. That atonement would be made by Christ in Christ only. A third lesson that we can glean from the absolute foolishness of of Saul, this this whole chapter, uh, is just the absolute foolishness of outward faithless that God will be pleased in what you believe. Uh, Don't be fooled by thinking that God will be pleased by you just being a morally upright person for the sake of being a morally upright person. Don't think for a second that God is going to be impressed by your good deeds and that that'll be the basis of God accepting you. No, your morality actually offends God. Your good works are filthy rags to Him apart from His grace. No, it's not moralism that pleases God. It's faith. Faith is what pleases God. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that faith pleases God. It tells us that without faith, it is actually impossible to please God. And so with that said, Guard yourself against believing that if you just do this and do that, if you check this box and check that box, that God will be happy with you, that He'll accept you. Listen, He will not accept anything less than the perfect, unblemished righteousness of Jesus Christ, His own Son. And it's in light of this principle that God calls every sinner to behold the cross of our Savior, His Son, who was crushed for our iniquity, to believe on His Son, casting our sins upon Him, that we may, in exchange, be clothed by His own perfect righteousness. Look, therefore, to the cross, where the sinless Savior hangs, bleeding, and see and understand that your sin renders you worthy of such a gruesome and barbaric death. But also, don't just see that you deserve that. See also the love of God demonstrated in the fact that Jesus died in the place of all who would believe on Him. So that by His wounds we are healed. By His wounds we are reconciled to God. By His wounds we are forgiven and cleansed of every sin. And by His wounds we are received as sons and daughters of God. Consider, therefore, that true religion involves living and leading by true biblical convictions which are consistent with God's Word, driven by faith from the heart, and tempered by graciousness. Yes, we must be gracious toward one another. Has the Lord not been gracious with you? He has been. This is the very opposite of legalism. It's not a false outward showing of godliness that denies the power thereof. Rather, it's where the power for true Christian living is found. And so may your lives, therefore, be marked by a godliness that does know 
the power therein. And that is in true, humble faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we once again thank You for Your Word. And we realize that Your Word is the ultimate authority. That if we were to add anything, all we could do is add poison to perfectly clean water. All we can do is mess things up. We recognize, O oh God, that Your ways are perfect, Your ways are pure, and our ways, our thinking, our wisdom is foolishness. And so, O oh Lord, we commit ourselves to Your ways. And we ask that by Your grace working in us, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, we would delight in Your will and delight in Your ways. We ask that Your Word would be a, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, that, me, that we may do what pleases You, that we may be filled with faith in Your Son, and that by Your Spirit working within us, we would commit ourselves to glorifying and enjoying You forever. For the glory of Him who died for us by shedding His own blood. Amen.